Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. One day I'm going to stop doing that. And I say that every episode, but you know it's not going to happen. So thank you for joining me on this ride today. And I'm excited that we have today Danny. That's who you hear giggling right now. Danny <laughs> J. Danny J in the background. Uh, she's a former. I feel like once you're an acrobat, you're always an acrobat. This it's is like, true. Right? It's not like you just all, all of a sudden stop doing handstands. I, I, I feel like you're, you're constantly on, on two hands. It's funny. Uh, I'm going to a retreat this weekend, and I just got a text asking if I could do a back handspring. And I was like, ooh, since 2020, I haven't done much. So I'm not sure I want to throw my back out. <laughs> Yeah, but you got stands. Yeah, we could do a handstand. Yeah, you got to warm. We got to do like some some Pilates <laughs> or something. Like ease your way into. It. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, award winning, uh, former acrobat turned award winning entrepreneur, keynote speaker, podcast host, and storyteller with over a hundred plus siblings. People, a hundred plus siblings. Today, she works with uh, professional women and helps them rebuild and restart after relationships or financial collapse through her programs, workshops, and personal coaching. Fi you know, collapse is such a strong word, Danny J. Mm -hmm. Financial collapse, financial ruin. Uh, I actually want to start off there because we, we're, we're still in this pandemic and uh, people have lost their jobs, their houses, their families. Some people are doing better, actually. Uh, some people are, have found a way to 10x, 100x, whatever they were doing before. Uh, when you talk about financial collapse, talk. tell me more about that. Yeah. So personally, I went through <laughs> my own financial collapse and uh, probably multiple times, actually. Um, you know, going back to the acrobat thing, I was an acrobat at SeaWorld and I ended up getting paralyzed and not from acrobatics, but actually from the water um, at SeaWorld, which is a whole other podcast in itself. Um, but because of that, I was hospitalized and I was just 22 years old, my insurance. So at the time, I think now you could be on your parents' insurance till you're 26, but at the time it was until you, I believe it's like 22 or you graduate in like six months after you graduate college. So I had literally graduated in December and then so six months later would have been June. And I went to the hospital July 1st. So long story short, um, my medical bills were a quarter of a million dollars, which today is, you know, would probably be over a million, but even then for a 22 year old quarter of a million dollars, isn't what I had in my back pocket at 22 years old. And I had to file bankruptcy, um, medical bankruptcy, uh, at 24. And then through 2008, I was married. My ex-husband and I lived in Vegas. And if you were around back then or know, like there was a huge housing bubble, especially in Detroit, Phoenix, and Vegas. And so we got caught kind of in the middle of that, lost our jobs, lost everything, foreclosed on our home, moved in with friends and stayed on their couch and had to start from zero with work again and building. And so I've been where it felt like the world's collapsing around, around you. I remember even at the time, the 2008, it felt even worse because I was turning 30 and I felt like I should be at the next level by now. Like I should be moving into a bigger house and I should be having the next steps instead of going backwards where I felt like suddenly I was 
back in college, living in a one bedroom apartment. And I felt like such a loser. And I know that people have these moments and financially it really can hurt your self-esteem and who you feel like you are. And you look at everyone else and you feel like you should be in a different place. And so for me, financial collapse is just that it's like where you feel like you're losing everything, whether it's a job, work, your home, um, but you're kind of starting from scratch. And I think really it's the starting over. That's the piece that I really love to help people with. And there's a lot of similarities in starting over when it comes to your finances, even your health, you know, working out. I know for the pandemic, a lot of people, for me, I'm starting over with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's where the whole financial collapse comes from. So let's talk about that starting over piece, because that that is right. I, I You know what I, I think about driving and nothing gets my goat worse than missing my exit. Like I got to go back. Like there's, I, like I'd rather drive another 50 miles than to have to go back two miles. I don't know what it is about going back. Like yes. I was here already. Yes. I moved out the house. I graduated. I had a job and now I'm moving in with friends and, and you're moving in with your husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing. I feel like we, and you just hit the nail on the head. It feels like a punishment. If we have to start over, it feels like a punishment. And I use the example of that game, Shoots and Ladders. I don't know if you remember playing this when you were a kid, but oh, yeah. There, yeah, there's like a board, there's a hundred squares or something, and you can you roll your number, spin the number, you land on something and you can climb a ladder. But some of the times you have to take a slide and you go all the way back down. And it's like, this sucks. I was at the top and I'm going backwards. And so it feels like such a punishment. But if you play with kids and I feel like even adults do this too. But if you play with kids, especially five, six, seven years old, if they get that slide, they're like, wait, 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 I want to do over. I want to do over. Like they want to try to roll again so they can maybe skip that and like miss that part. And I think there's a big difference in when you feel like you have to start over, it feels like a punishment, but a do over is something you get to do. You're like, oh, I want to try again. I want to get a do over. And so I think there's a mindset shift we can make in like having to start over versus getting a do over and going, you know what? I'm going to try something new this time and I'm going to get to do it differently and maybe I'll get a different outcome. And that was a big shift that I had to make in realizing that, yes, it felt like <laughs> missing the exit, having to turn around, go back. I've already been here. Like, why do I have to go through these steps again? But you actually do learn so much. There's, I mean, it's, there's so many cheesy sayings out there and a lot of them have some truth, but one of them is like, you don't start over, you start from experience. And I kind of hate that, but it is, it is also true. Like we never are really starting back from the beginning. We have lessons that we've learned and we can take detours. We have connections. We always have something else, but it's first getting your mindset right about it. Because if you sit there and the like feeling unfair and I've already been here and this sucks, I mean, we, you're allowed to do that. It's totally fair. And it's part of the process, but then at some point you have to go, all right, now I got to get back on the horse or the wagon or whatever thing you're getting back on and, you know, try to get back to where you were or past where you were. And I think we have this fallacy in our mind of we're never going to get back there, or it's going to take just as long. And it, I don't want to say never happens that way, but nine times out of 10, you get back to where you were a lot faster than how long it took you to get there because you already have the skills and you already have a lot of things behind you. You have the experience. You know, what comes to mind is in school, how you, uh, when you wrote a paper and the teacher would be like, all right, write a first draft and then turn it in. Yeah. And 
and that's and then he would make corrections and then give it back and then you would you know hopefully add those corrections and then you know turn in your your final draft and i i realized like i just wanted to turn it in i like i didn't i didn't want you to give it back to me just give me the grade just give just i'll 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 fall on a sword like whatever it is it is uh and but now that i'm 45 i am cherishing the value of collaborating with others and i realized i love just getting out the first draft and then letting other people tweak it and then getting it back and now it's it's 10 times better um or or stronger like you said you're bringing more experience uh to it and maybe you're not bringing it to that same job but in uh your next job, you'll be surprised at what you've learned and how you've been able to translate that into your next uh, venture. Have you found that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so similar in that, you know, I did a Ted talk this year and one of the things I hated the most about it and prepping for it was the redoing and the rewriting. Cause I'm like, you you know, I'll do YouTube videos and I'm like one take, that's it. I don't want to try to do it again. Cause I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I'd rather just get it done and then just pe- press publish. And, you know, when I do a lot of public speaking for the most part, I have some things written out and then I just give the talk. I haven't spent a lot of time redoing it over and over. And I'm sure you've probably had to do this in, in comedy, try that some things out and see what works. So with the Ted talk, it's so important that you really nail that message and keep it tight within 18 minutes. And so there were so many versions of rewriting and rewriting. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. One of the hardest talks I've ever done because of the constant going back and refining it. But it's also what makes it such a great talk. And what keeps the message so tight was because I went through and like crossed out words I didn't need to use and really just cleaned it up, if that makes sense. And, um, so I think, yeah, there's, there's something to be said about getting that second chance and making something better and doing something different. So I, I know you've been through this as well. I think just from your comedy show, or I think so. Um, but divorce, you know, I went through, I went through that about four and a half years ago. I got separated five years ago. And I remember this going, oh my God, I have to go back into the dating world, which to be honest, I don't feel like I ever dated. I was young, had a boyfriend, had a boyfriend, and then had a husband. And so I didn't know how to date, didn't know what that looked like. And so I went out and I started to date a lot of different people and started to like really refine what I wanted and what I was looking for and who I was. And it actually gave me a really awesome chance to be someone new and meet someone new and do something different and learn from my mistakes in my last relationship. And so if we can just look at life as a process instead and like get excited about the journey, I used to hate, hate when people said, enjoy the journey. And I'm like, I just want to be there. I don't want to be broke anymore. And I know probably people listening are feeling like that. Like I hate this journey, but if we can learn to enjoy the process and realize like there's no finish line, there's no getting there, then it can be a lot more enjoyable and a lot more fun and we can have a really cool outcome better even than you originally expected or planned for so here, here's what's beautiful about everything you've said um I, there's this quote by stephen king that says uh he says write with the door closed and rewrite with the door open and I, and i bring that up to say that what i've realized that i hated about doing things over is i felt like 
I had to do it myself. Mm. Right. I didn't like the fact that I have to do it all over. I had to start all over. And now that I'm I'm 45, I don't know why I keep throwing my age out there like that. You know, <laughs> like I'm bragging. Now that I got this Louis V back. Um, now that I'm 45, I realize the part that I love is who I'm on the journey with. Mm. Right. So like the the journey is cool. Like going to Paris is nice or going to Sri Lanka or Thailand. But who I get to go with is really what makes it an enriching and nourishing uh, process. And so I think for people who may be going through a divorce or a financial collapse or et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's really about asking yourself, who am I going through this process with? And who can I recruit into this process to nourish me? Because it's like, you know, you're an acrobat, so you, you, you can have a sports background. It, it was the, the other teammates and the coaches and the and the people around you that made that held you accountable for going to practice and you know made doing it practicing the same little technique over and over again uh, worthwhile. And I, and I think that you know that's part, part of the mindset and part of the process is uh, you know collaborating with other people. And I, I could I could feel you on the other end of this like resonating with what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. You know, and maybe this comes to from childhood and how we were in school. I think maybe for a while, like the back to thinking you have to do it alone is, um, you know, I remember the group projects and I was always the person who felt like I hated group projects because my mom demanded I get straight A's that was required. And then my grades rested on other people doing the work. So I was always that person in the group project that would basically just take on everybody's job. Like I'm making sure we get, it all gets done. I'm going to take it on. There's people in the group who just don't pull their weight. And so I was, I always hated it. Cause I'm like, I'm doing it anyway. And I finally learned as I've gotten older as well as like to enroll people in it and to collaborate and to get help and asking for help is one of the most tumbling and vulnerable things you can do, especially if you're a type of person who feels like they have to do it all themselves, but it is also one of the most courageous things I think anyone can do. And it's not just about asking for help, like, you know, help me hang this window or a picture on the wall, or, you know, can I borrow some money, but just asking for help, like, uh, my mom just passed away and, you know, maybe I just need someone to talk to like, Hey, I'd love if you could just sit with me or just being really vulnerable and allowing people to show up for you can really challenge your own self-trust, but also realize that you're not alone in this and that it can be like what you said, it's like who you're doing it with, who are you doing life with and who are you experiencing with can make everything that you do so much better, but it takes a level of courage to get out there and like allow people to be there for you and allow people to like share it with i, I want to backtrack a little bit and to that point where it's 2008 financial collapse you're, you're moving in with friends and your husband what was that dynamic like and, and i'm asking this because uh you know so much research on our identity being tied to the work that we do and being who we are, like I am an Uber driver, I am a lawyer versus I do law work or mm-hmm. I drive for Uber. What, uh, what, what were the conversations, the emotions that you and your husband had at that time? 
Yeah. To be honest, it was a lot. If I would give any advice, I would say, get over yourself and get your ego out of the way, because what held us back the most and the longest was that embarrassment and shame of feeling like we were losers. We couldn't handle it. We couldn't do our own, you know, we couldn't make our bills. Um, we were embarrassed to ask for any kind of help. You know, we had a lot of pride. We ended up going on food stamps, um, basically to help our friends with the, since they weren't charging us rent, we got on food stamps so we could like buy groceries for everybody. Um, but to be honest, it was really a struggle. You know, I think even more so for my, my ex-husband, I think, um, and I can't speak for men cause I'm not a man, but I think for men in general, a lot of it is a lot of their identity is tied to who they are. I think for women, a lot of our identity is tied to what we look like. Um, but for men, it's like what you do and how you provide. And so he felt so much like he wasn't that he was failing as a provider. And so I know it really took a toll and a hit on his self-esteem and his ego. And it did on mine as well, because I had a successful personal training business. We were doing six figures. We were really, really crushing it. And in fact, 2008 wasn't when this hit us. It was like a delayed response for us. So it was like 2010, 11. What happened in 2008 was a lot of my clients were stopping, were either getting laid off or they were stopping paying their mortgages. So what was happening was these banks were coming in, but there were so many people not paying their mortgage that people were like staying in their homes for free for up to two years. So it was very fascinating. So I was watching on the news, watching all this go down. I remember my parents going, Hey, the economy's falling. People are losing their jobs. My husband and I were personal trainers and we're like, man, we're doing really good. And all of our clients were coming in where they were saying, well, I'm not paying my mortgage anymore. So I figured I'll use this money to improve my health. I've always wanted to get a trainer. So for two years, we were crushing it. And then suddenly the end of 2010, 11 clients started coming in saying, Hey, I have to quit working with you. We're losing our house. Now the banks are finally kicking us out. We have to move. And so it was this rapid, suddenly all the banks were coming in and we were losing all our clients. And it was like, Oh, now it's hitting us. And so it was this huge embarrassment of, we were crushing it for a couple of years. I thought we had missed it. Like, oh, it's kind of like the pandemic now, you know, people doing really well. Well, two years from now, I have a feeling there's going to be people with the same situation that we were in where it was kind of this delayed, uh, delayed hit. And so the conversations were just, those are, you know, we were blaming ourselves a lot of, a lot of just loss of confidence and thinking, man, I'm such a loser. I remember going we moved to Utah to live with our friends and I was trying to get any kind of job and never in my life had I applied for a job. I didn't get, I was, I was confident I could show up. I could apply. I knew I was going to get a job. Well, I applied to so many places and we're going to an interview. It was for a chiropractic office and I had a master's degree and I was sitting next wait in the waiting room. And there was a woman who was like my mom's age also applying. And I remember just feeling guilty that I was applying for a job and I was thinking in my head, like, oh, I'm going to get this over her and she probably needs it more. Um, but I went in, the chiropractor interviewed me and he goes, you have a master's degree. Why are you trying to get this job? And I literally was like, because I need it. And this is like a eight or $10 an hour receptionist job at the chiropractic office. Needless to say, I didn't get the job. And I remember feeling like, oh, it's because I'm too old, which is makes me laugh now because I was 30 and I was going, oh my gosh, now I'm not getting hired because I'm too old. I can't get work. I'm overqualified. I have a master's degree and I can't even get a $10 an hour job. And so I felt 
like giving up. And I remember, you know, I had many times in my life just felt beat down and like, this isn't worth living, but this was another one of those times where just the humiliation and feeling like I couldn't get out of it. And I didn't know how made me feel like this is not even worth doing anymore. And it was really freaking hard. When you say it wasn't worth doing anymore and it was really freaking hard, what was your process from like, you're having these thoughts, you're having these feelings and and then what, like, what's your, what's your first step? How are you clawing your way from that? Yeah. So couple things, you know, when I work with people, I tell them that there is a grieving process and that is a huge piece that I don't think we could skip. Um, I think there's the grief you're grieving, what could have been, what was, you know, the, you know, losing our house. I was grieving my neighborhood, my home moved to a whole other state. I had grown up in Las Vegas, never left. And now I'm 30 years old, finally leaving. Well, not true. I did leave to go to SeaWorld for a couple of years. Um, but it was like leaving my home. So I'm grieving that. And then I'm grieving like the future I thought I was going to have. I was grieving this idea of who I thought I was going to be and the financial goals I had set for myself that had fallen out. But really this, what happened for me and how I started getting out of it was this searching. So I, I don't know about you, but I, sometimes like I have a question, I literally just Google whatever is on my brain, you know, like, how do I stop feeling this way? Google is probably like, why are you asking me all of these things? But I remember just literally Googling all these ways to make money. And I was, and I, uh, our car had broken down. So I was looking up every single contest to try to win a car. And I was putting in four entries. Cause like, you can't use the same email. So I'd use my husband's email, my email, my mom's and my dad's email. And so I would enter all these sweepstakes. I'm like, we have to win a car. There's like, there's no other way. I know I can't afford it. Uh, credit is shot. I need a vehicle. And so I'm going to win a car. And I even had my friends, one of my friends, uh, emailed or wrote a letter to Ellen to try to get me a car. Like it was so ridiculous. And so I'm on the internet and just looking for anything. I'm spending my days just like searching for jobs, searching for work. And for some, oh, for some reason I started Googling myself and I'm sure like, I'm not the only one who's ever done this, but I Google myself with like all different spellings of my name to see what would come up. And I came across this woman named Danny Johnson and which is my name. And I went to her Facebook page. And at the time I had a pretty big following in fitness. I had a brand called the sweaty Bettys, and I probably had around 60,000 followers or so. And I went to the Danny Johnson's page and she had like a hundred thousand followers. And my thought was literally, who's this beep with my name and more followers than me, like back to the ego. And so I ended up clicking follow and I started seeing some of her posts and she was like this financial helping people get out of debt guru and business guru. And her stuff would start showing up in my feed. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So then I go to her, click on something and she's got a book called First Steps to Wealth. And I was like, oh, I got to order this book and it's free. I'm putting free in finger quotes, but you got to pay for shipping. And the shipping was like $7.95, which honestly, my bank account was always like $20. So it was actually still a lot of money for me to get this book. So I'm reading this book. I ordered it. I'm reading it. And toward the end, she said, 
uh, I remember this day and her whole story was like, she was homeless living out of her car and then turned to a millionaire. And so her story, I really resonated with, she had my name. And then at this last passage, she said, I remember this day really vividly. Cause it was March 2nd, whatever year, my birthday. And I just burst into tears because March 2nd was also my birthday. So I'm like, who is this lady who has my name, who has my birthday and who has my story? So I go to her website and she's having this workshop in Dallas. And my husband and I had just moved to Dallas because we left our friend's house. We couldn't find work. He got a job in Dallas for 30,000 a year, which I remember was ridiculous because we had always made like his salary had always been no less than like 70,000. She was having a workshop in Dallas in like three days. And I was like, what the heck? This lady has my name, has my birthday. We just moved to Dallas and she's here. I like have, I have to go. But the workshop was $400 and I had just gotten like some kind of payment and I put it on my credit card because I maxed out my credit card. I got a payment for 500. So I cleared like maxing it out. And I remember looking at this going, am I going to put, because I had, I didn't have any money then. So I was like, I'm going to have to charge this on my credit card again that I just paid down. And I'm like, the workshop was kind of about getting out of debt. And I'm like, is this going to be the stupidest thing I ever did or the smartest to put myself in debt to go to workshop about getting out of debt? (laughs) And I remember just having this, oh, you're so dumb conversation with myself. And finally I left it till the last minute and I cut, and maybe you've done this too, that I'm like, okay, I'm going to call. And if they're sold out, I'm not going, but if they have any spots, then I have to go. So I called and they're like, yeah, you can go. I was like, dang it. So I put on my charge card, didn't tell my husband what it cost. I said, we're going to go to this event. And it was a two day, you know, like live event. And I am such a big believer in live events and workshops and investing in yourself. Now I had never done anything like this before, but those two days really changed my life. And I think the big reason was, is that $400 meant more to me than anything. I just went in going, I just have to get my $400 worth. I need to learn one thing from her that makes me $400. And we were able to turn around and pay off $18,000 worth of debt in 69 days after that workshop. And it was simple things. It was a mindset shift, but it was just the commitment to it. And I think sometimes when we hit rock bottom, when we have to start over, we're faced with no other choice, but to do things differently and to try something different. And maybe things that we would have never even looked at before because we weren't pushed into a corner. And so I think there's something really powerful for this financial collapse or starting over or losing your job or your relationship falling apart. Because I don't know, my friend, Lori Harder, she's an author and she says, you can't rob people of their rock bottom. And I really believe there's some truth in that. And sometimes we have to hit this rock bottom in order to look at things with the different eyes and have a vastly different outcome and have no other choice. So ultimately how that all turned around was I luckily found a mentor and then I just gave myself no other choice, but I had to do something different. All right. What you did was in none of the books on how to build wealth that I've read. (laughs) Yeah. Like it it breaks all the rules. And and that's why I love that story because at the end of the day, there really are no rules. At some point you follow the rules and then you just have to go with your gut and you have to be willing to fall on a, on a sword. I always talk about, I I mean, I might be too graphic, 
but but do you have to be willing like it sounds like you were willing to be like if this doesn't work then then so be it and I'm, I'm willing to um suffer those consequences but uh this seems like the the universe is calling to you uh, like yeah. she has your name she has your birthday uh first of all we're both pisces so shout out uh, nice, nice. Pisces in the building. It sounds yep. like something a Pisces would do, um, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> but um, I so two things I want to put a pin in because I like to keep the, the audience on the edge of their seats. Because uh, you, you talked about the one thing that you learned from her, and then in sixty nine days you got out of debt, and you talked about getting a mentor. I want to put a pin in that, and I want to go back just a little bit. Um. When you said you were paralyzed at SeaWorld, yeah, I've had neck surgery and I was paralyzed twice, <sighs> and they gave me all the all the painkillers uh, an, an addict would want to have. Were you? Did you have any issues with the with the pain meds and and the rehab and and all that? Yeah, so. The reason I got paralyzed was there was a bacteria in the water that got in my sacroiliac joint, cut off all the nerves to my legs. So I couldn't walk for, I couldn't walk normally for about a year. Um, I was able to use a walker within a month or so, but um, I was in excruciating pain. Um, when I first went into the hospital, it was because of the pain. And it was like this sciatica kind of nerve uh, it's so hard to describe, but if anybody's ever had sciatica, I would say it's probably very similar, but then on like level 10. And I remember them giving me morphine, like in the IV and the very moment it was like within two seconds, just my whole body. And I was like, oh, this is why people get addicted to heroin and morphine. Like this feels good. And so I had this awareness, but when I was in high school, when I was 15 years old, um, I was a gymnast, hence becoming the acrobat. I had uh, some bad elbow issues. And I started taking Advil and to get rid of the pain. And my mom kept threatening me that if the elbows were getting worse, she was going to make me quit. And I felt like gymnastics was my whole life and it was all I had. So I started to abuse that. And I was taking eight to 16 Advil a day. Um, and there was a lot of other things going on at the time. And I ended up in a mental hospital because I was suicidal. And so in, during that time, I really struggled with like the pills and kind of getting off of the pills. And so in the back of my mind, I had kind of gotten through that, um, through my high school years and stopped taking pills to where I was almost scared of pills. Like I wouldn't even take an Advil if I had a headache when I was like 18, 19. So now fast forward to being paralyzed and I'm on all these drugs in the hospital In the hospital. I felt safe. I felt good. When I got out, they sent me home with Percocet, which I didn't really love. Um, but I think that there was a point where I was so afraid that I was going to become dependent or get addicted. And I didn't want to go back to who I was that I pulled myself off of them, even though I was still in a lot of pain. So I really, really made a conscious effort to get off of the pain pills because of the fear of what it could do and because who I knew myself to be in the past and what I was capable of. So yeah, there was definitely the desire, um, part of it, not just to get rid of the pain, but just to escape what was happening. I, you know, went back to the identity piece and like, you know, losing your job, I was an acrobat 
And I was a gymnast and my degree was in physical education. So everything was about my body. So suddenly when I can't walk and I can't do anything, I felt like I'd lost my identity, my, my job, everything I'd ever done. Um, I was back to being suicidal all over again. And the real catalyst behind this all was one of my best friends was diagnosed with cancer. And she came over to see me after I got the hospital and she was terminal. And I remember opening the door and I had my walker at the time. And she looked at me and she was like, Danny, I can't believe this happened to you. It's so unfair. And I remember just going, oh my God, her name was Kelly. I was like, Kelly is saying that this is unfair, that I can't walk, but she has cancer that is going to take her life. And so she left. And that was really the day that I was like, I got to stop this. I need to stop feeling sorry for myself. Like she doesn't have a chance to live. I do. I don't have a chance to walk. That sucks, but I can do something with my life. She's not getting that chance. And that's really when I stopped taking the pills and stopped feeling sorry for myself and stopping suicidal, because I realized like that I was almost, it's almost like a slap in the face to someone who really didn't get the chance. And I was just shitting on this opportunity I had to live. And not not to say that that was easy and that was a decision I made, but that doesn't mean it stopped in the moment. And as you probably know, like those thoughts still don't just go away, but I fought it harder. I was like, I'm in pain. I'm going to just really, really knuckle through this and get through the pain. I don't want to be alive right now, but I would sit there thinking about Kelly and how she wasn't going to dance. And so I fought it and I through it and it was not easy at all, but yeah, those, the, the pill thing was definitely something that made me nervous. And I really had to make a conscious decision to like pull those out of my life. Was the suicidal ideation linked only to the physical pain or was there other pain or things going on in the household or childhood experiences? Yeah. Yeah. So the first, so when I was 15, um, there was a lot going on in my house from 14. My mom, it's not my mom's fault. I shouldn't say my mom, my cousin had molested me growing up, uh, when I was maybe eight, nine, between five and eight. And I hadn't seen him in years. His mother, my aunt was an abusive relationship. She was hospitalized. He had nowhere to go. So my parents took him in to move into our house. And at this point I was a, in eighth grade. So we got 14 years old and he was a high schooler. And, um, I remember when he moved in, I was begging my parents not to have him because I was so afraid of what he could do at that point. And he was bigger now, stronger, we were older. And so I kept begging them, but they didn't know. So they were just telling me I was being selfish for not wanting them to live there. And he had nowhere to go. And I'm like, can he live with his dad? Why does he have to live with us? And so we got in these huge fights. And so I stopped, we had, I was in middle school, he was in high school. So I would just stay at school and wait for the late bus. So I wouldn't ever have to be home alone with him until my parents got home from work. And so I just lived in this constant fear. And I started to just really have these, this self-hatred and just knowing he was there and being angry with my parents and for not protecting me. And they wouldn't let me put a lock on the door and they kept accusing me of being selfish. So it turned into this, like, instead of being angry at them, I turned it inward. And, um, I also found out that same year that my dad was not my real dad. 
hence where the whole hundred siblings thing comes from. I found out that my dad and mom used a sperm donor for me to be born. My dad was sterile. And then he told me that we were to keep it a secret. And so I had this big secret. I had two big secrets that I was keeping in. And I think, you know, at that age, I just didn't know what to do with it. And I just started to hate everyone and hate life and hate myself. And I started dating somebody and I was super suicidal and I was constantly talking about it. And I, my, we had a gun at the house and I remember holding the gun to my head and I was planning how I was going to do it. I, I had figured I felt bad for my little brother. So I was going to wait until he turned 18 and then I was going to do it. Um, but I was around when I was 15 and a half, I just, I don't even remember if there was a thing that happened, but it was like, I'm going to do this now. And my boyfriend was like, you need to get help. And so he made me go to my mom and take me to this behavioral health center. It's called charter. Basically it's for kids on drugs or suicidal or whatever. So I went in there, they put me on suicide watch, like as they call it SP three suicide prevention three. That's like the highest, which means you're on 24 hour surveillance. Someone's watching you every minute. They're watching you pee. They're watching you eat. There's someone in there when you're in bed, they take everything away from you. So you, there's nothing you can harm yourself with. And I was in there for a good chunk of the month. And while I was there, I found out I was pregnant. And the first thing I said, when I found out I was pregnant was I'm going to have an abortion because I'm going to kill myself anyway. So what does it matter? And to make a long story short, I ended up meeting a woman. They were going to send me away to an eating disorder clinic. Cause I had also been struggling with bulimia and the pills and just all this self-destructive behavior, cutting and everything. Um, and I met this woman at the eating disorder clinic and she was telling me her story. And for whatever reason, I felt really connected to her. And I just said, I want you to have my baby. And she was like, what? I was like, yeah, I want you to have my baby. And she had just told me that she couldn't have kids anymore. She had two children. She couldn't have kids anymore because her eating disorder like wrecked her body. And so I made this plan to give her my child. And then when I was about four months pregnant, the lady called me crying and she said, I can't do the adoption because it's going to it's going to be a private adoption. It's going to cost $50,000 and we just don't have the money. And I remember going, well, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Because now it felt too late to have an abortion. And I was terrified and the things going on in my home, there was a lot of contention with my parents and a lot of anger and things and all the things coming out and telling the truth. And, and so I found another way to do an open, a semi-open adoption. I found parents for my daughter and when she was born, I remember holding her and I was like, what if she grows up and she asks about her birth mother? Cause at this point I still had planned on committing suicide. I was like waiting. And I said, what if she grows up and finds out that I killed myself and thinks it's her fault for being born. And that really, really broke my heart. Because just looking at this baby, it's like, she's so innocent. She didn't ask to be here. She didn't be asked to be put in this situation. And that was like my first really big time of going, I can't do this. I can't, I need to find something to live for. I need to find something to do. Um, but just sharing that. And just even that moment, 
those thoughts came back. I think, you know, it's when someone suffers from depression and has things going on and traumas, like our brain changes. So when I went back to that, you know, six years later being paralyzed, those same thoughts were coming back. Like I felt worthless. I didn't want to live. I wanted to die again. And I didn't care about my daughter at that point going, well, she's not going to think it's her fault now it's later. And, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs and I won't lie in 2018, I had these thoughts come back again. It was not that long ago. I was in a really, really good place in my life. I was through my divorce. I was living in LA. I had some great friends, really great support. And I remember walking with my girlfriend and for whatever reason, I just would see a car coming. And I was just like having these thoughts of what if I just step out into the street? And I, that scared me because I was feeling this pull so strongly and things were going really well. And I told her I needed to go get help. And I got back on medication in 2018. And I think we have to be really aware that it doesn't <laughs> like I had trauma happen when I was 15 and I felt like there's quote reasons that I wanted to die. And, and when I was paralyzed, same thing, like the pain and not being able to do anything. I had reasons, but then 2018, that was something that really scared me because I didn't feel like I had any reasons, felt like I had all the reasons to live. And yet I still had these thoughts come up and these very, very scary, um, overwhelming thoughts of wanting to harm myself. And so I think this conversation we need to have, because it can be really misunderstood where these come from. And, and I ended up doing a podcast on, on that episode in 2018, I went to an emergency mental health clinic where I can get on med on meds. And I started going to just keep up on that. And it's interesting what people will say. I get these DMS and people like, well, just have a gratitude practice. You just need to be grateful. And I'm like, bitch, I am grateful. <laughs> I have a really amazing life. Things are really good right now. And yet I still wanted to do this. And so I know that sometimes we don't have any explanation for why we feel the way we do. Um, and it give me, it's given me a different understanding of, you know, like true, I don't know, depression and just compassion and realizing that there's not like a cut and dry answer. There's a lot of things that can happen in your life that make you feel like it's not worth living. And sometimes it could just be chemical or hormonal or something, but it's real and it's real to you, no matter what it is. If someone else doesn't think it's a good reason, well, it doesn't matter. It's whatever you're feeling. And the, the reality is, is those are permanent decisions that could be made on something that can change. And so I think I'm just, I don't know. I'm really, I think it's really cool. You have these conversations on your podcast because there are so many different things that can go on and happen and change, and you can make a decision. I'm not going to do this. And then it comes back again later. And that's, that's something to pay attention to. Wow. Thank you for sharing that part of your story. Um, I know that wasn't easy. And, uh, and uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing that because it, it is a reminder that uh, it's it's not just when we're in pain or when we've lost our house or going through a divorce. It could be when we bought a new house and we're getting mm -hmm. married and mm -hmm. uh, a kid's on the way and we got a promotion and we're vacationing in, in, in the Alps, uh, that, that, you know, I call them sandstorms. They just, like you said, it could just come out of nowhere, Yeah, you know, and just hit you. And you're like, Whoa, what was that about at 2 PM on the afternoon? 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, that was something really, because, um, you know, I've been through, obviously, you know, when I went to that behavioral health center, and then after my daughter was born, tons of counseling, lots of social work. I've done a lot of work on myself, a lot of work with, with counselors, with shamans and all kinds of different healing modalities and things like that. And so it's hard too, when you feel like, oh, I've already been back to the starting over. I'm like, I've already been down this road. I've already done this. Like, why are these things coming back? So frustrating. But what I am glad I had was the tools and the going back to like asking for help. It was when it happened 2018, which was very terrifying for me, because like I said, things were going so well. Um, I was having some of the best conversations in my life. I had some of the best support, but to ask for help was something still scary for me, but I knew I had to do it. And it was such a relief to know that I could, and that I had had to have the practice asking for help before, you know, and I went to my best friend and I just said, Hey, it's funny. Cause I, I didn't want to tell her really what was going on. I said, Hey, can I borrow your car? She said, why? And I said, well, I don't really want to tell you, but I've just been having these thoughts. Like I am afraid I'm going to do something. I'm afraid I'm going to just walk into traffic or take a bottle of pills and alcohol or something. I don't know what, um, and I need to go get help. And she just said, let me come with you. And she drove me and we sat there in this damn place for five hours in this emergency, you know, clinic. And, um, (laughs) I was so glad she was there because I hate lines. And if I had gone by myself, I would have left. I've been like, hell no, I'm not waiting for this. There's no way. But she made me wait. And I remember we were kind of laughing about it at the time. I was like, see, this is why people kill themselves. We have to wait for five hours to get medicine. And it was funny, but not funny. Like we just, our system is not the best for treating people and helping people get through crises. And a lot of times I, I really believe if we can get through the crisis, part of what we're feeling, then we can slow down and kind of figure out, you know, a better plan moving forward. And I'm not saying like medication is the right thing for everybody, but I know for me that I needed something quickly, or I was going to make a permanent decision. Um, And so to choose medication at the time was, I think the right choice for me. I hadn't been on any antidepressants or anything for quite a few years, probably since my, my early twenties. Um, but I knew I needed to do something and I needed to shift. And it wasn't about trying to like have a gratitude practice all of a sudden. I was like, these thoughts are coming really rapidly and quickly, and they're very scary. And I feel like I could do something and I need to do something quick. And so I got on meds right away. And then I had to tweak those. And I ended up switching them a few months later to something else that helped me better, but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful. There was an opportunity. I'm grateful. One, I had a friend, um, that I could ask. I'm grateful that I recognize what was happening and I asked for help. And then I'm grateful that there was some solution for me to, to have, but I think we need to, you know, be aware. Maybe not everybody has that friend and we do have to fight for ourselves. We do have to advocate for ourselves. And when it comes to depression too, I know that could be one of the hardest things. Like it feels so hard to make a doctor's appointment (laughs) to pick. I mean, it's hard enough anyway. I hate errands, but when you're feeling so low, the last thing you want to do is try to look up somebody and then go rehash, you know, why you're there. And it's also even invasive and it feels so horrible when you're there and they're like, well, why are you here? You just burst into tears. You're like, 
I don't know. I can't even explain it, but it is one of the bravest things you can do. And unfortunately you have to save yourself. Like there's not always going to be someone there to save you. And so you've got to be able to like have that little piece in the back of your mind. That's like, I'm worth saving. I could do this and just like do the next hard thing and you'll figure out the rest later. You know, what I really love about what you said is practice asking for help. Mm -hmm. Like don't wait until stuff hits the fan and you trying to jump in front of the car to ask for help. Yeah. Like be like, uh, can you help me move a couch? Can you help me find a doctor? Can you help me bake a pie? Like asking for help is a practice. And you know, when we're in distress and we're in the storm, if we're out of practice, we're not going to, but the phone feels like it's a thousand pounds when we are in emotional distress, you know? So I love that you said that you were grateful that you had practice asking for help. That's why, you know, it's so important that when the, when the sandstorm subsides, when we're in, we're, we're in the clear, so to speak, that's the time to build up your defenses because it's coming back around, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, like you were like 2018, things are great. And then you're like, whoa, what is this? And luckily, like you said, you had a friend, you had a support system and you had the practice of asking for help and there was a solution. So uh, the, the point is, it's not just one thing. If you only had the friend, but you didn't have the practice of asking for help, you wouldn't have asked your friend. And if there wasn't a solution, um, you know, who knows what the outcome may have been. So practice asking for help. And especially when you feel, when we feel neutral, right? I have a team around me right now. You said making that doctor's appointment, ain't nobody making that. Because, because first of all, the, if you, if you wait till you're in distress, the doctor ain't available for another three months. Yep. Let's get that. Let's make that clear with COVID and everybody sick and in the hospital. So it's so build your team now in the off season. And then so when, that, when that season of distress comes around now, now you, you ready, you know, who your starting quarterback is and your doctor. Oh, okay. Too many sports analogies. All right. <laughs> I'm too, I'm way too excited about the football season. I love it. Love it. <laughs> um, two things. I know you want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what was the bacteria and how did the bacteria get in the water? Because now I'm terrified. I go swimming yes. every day. Ooh. I need to know more about this bacteria and who put it there. <laughs> okay. So um, my show was in Mission Bay. So it's actually not even SeaWorld's water. It's California, San Diego water, Mission Bay water. And what I found out was it, there was three bacteria, um, E. coli, which we all have in our digestive tract. And we also know that, you know, E. coli and food can really make you sick and kill you. Um, e. coli, enterobacter and Klebsiella. And these are all three bacteria that my doctor said you would typically find in sewage. And I found out as I did research on how I got sick and what happened, and it literally almost killed me was that, um, there's a lot of sewage that's been dumped from Tijuana and it comes up and the Bay is very like, you know, the, the water ocean beach and PB and everything, there's waves it's in and out, but the Bay is much more stagnant water. And so it allows the bacteria to grow. And then the summertime with the heat, it just grows. And because I was working in this water eight hours a day, um, I don't know how I got it in my blood, 
um, usually what would happen is people in the shows, we would get sick. We got a lot of um, sinus infections and like gastro, you know, like diarrhea and stuff, because that gets into your stomach and it makes you sick. Um, but I got in my bloodstream somehow, and it was either through a cut or potentially, you know, through my nose or something, but not sure exactly how it got so bad and got in my bloodstream, but it basically poisoned my blood. Um, and it nearly killed me. And then for whatever reason, the fact that it got into my sacroiliac joint is probably what saved me because otherwise it didn't really have any other symptoms. I probably would have just had a fever and then, you know, thought I was sick and stayed home for two days and then it would have died. But luckily I put luckily in quotes, but luckily I was in so much pain. I ended up going to the ER and when I went to the ER, they said, you have a fever and it was like 104 which I didn't even know <laughs> all I was worried about was the pain, but I had a 104.6 fever and they go, yeah, this isn't just sciatica. Something else is going on. And that's what got them doing labs. And that's how I found out I got the bacterial infection and quickly got IV antibiotics and, and all that stuff that, that really saved my life. But yeah, good old, uh, mission Bay, dirty sewage water. So I would just, if you decide to swim in the bay, which I wouldn't recommend at all, but if you do, just really keep your mouth shut and don't swallow the water. Oh my God. We just did, uh, uh, had a, a friend had her birthday party on a, on a boat and uh, people were jumping. We, we just stayed in the bay and people were jumping in the water. And I was like, there's no way. There's no Oh yeah. Especially because yeah. I know you've, you've been to 30, like over 37 countries. Mm -hmm. And so you've seen what water is supposed to look like. <laughs> yeah. And so when I came back to the States, I was like, I never getting in that water. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is. Oh yeah. There is so it, it, much sewage in there and it's, you know, I was so, so I also, I learned a lot about this when I got sick. So they actually test the water every single day. And so for our show, um, they would test the water every day. And if the bacteria levels were at a certain range, which they have like a quote safe range, then we weren't supposed to be in the water that day. And we'd have what we call dry shows where we basically just do most of our show on land. It made it a little bit more lame, but you know, we, we would do dry shows a couple of times. And usually when it rains in San Diego, the bacteria gets stirred up. So it's a lot worse. And the whole week before I got sick was raining and they probably weren't supposed to be letting us in the water, but they didn't call it off. But the irony was that the week after I went to the hospital, suddenly my cast members were calling me and going, Hey, we're doing a dry show like every day this week. And I was like, yeah, that's because they're scared because I got sick and they were probably supposed to having us do dry shows the whole week before, but they didn't. So there was a lot of negligence. They know there's bacteria in there. There are certain quote safe levels. I don't, I mean, I would personally wouldn't want any of it on me, but there are times where it gets really bad, where it just is unsafe for people to be in completely. Is there a website where they post safe that like, I don't uh, care about the winds. Like they, they, they got the flags out there for the currents. Oh, yeah. Bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in 2003. And I think at the time there was a site, I can't remember what it is, but I'm sure you could Google it and find something where they have, um, there's, and this was interesting too, because after this all happened, you know, a lot of people, their next question is, well, did you sue SeaWorld and did you have a lawsuit? And I tried actually first, um, I was trying, 
I was actually hired by a company called Imagination Entertainment. They were contracted with SeaWorld. So first I just thought, well, we just get workman's comp because this is a workman's comp case. Um, but workman's comp, they don't want to pay. So they said, no, this isn't a workman's comp case. This is a personal injury case. So I was going back and forth there, whether it's personal injury or workman's comp. And then it came down to, do you sue Imagination Entertainment? Do you sue SeaWorld? And then I went out to, I watched the movie, Erin Brockovich, and I actually reached out to her because I could not get this case going. And it ended up turning into, well, it's not even SeaWorld, it's the state of California. So now you're going to have to sue the state of California about this water. And because I was only 22 and I was hospitalized and so sick and really not even there mentally for a long time either. Um, and I was going between two states. I had to move back home to Vegas to live with my parents after about a year and a half. And this was pre-internet. So everything had to be faxed and it cost a lot of money and I didn't, I couldn't drive. I ended up just dropping the case and filing bankruptcy, but you know, looking back, I wish I had to hold on to it, but I just was, you know, it was too much. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of, couldn't figure it all out. I didn't know the whole law thing and I was too young to figure it all out, but it was a big deal, a really big deal. And, uh, the state of California should have, they owe me something. <laughs> they owe me some money, man. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so glad you shared that because <laughs> I'm old. Oh, I'm doubling down now. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so i want i want to jump forward a little bit um I, wow there's so many places I want, okay so in 2008 and even in 2018 even though things are going well i want to ask you about this because we talked about men being a provider mm-hmm. and the and the kind of the pressure that comes with that especially like when there's financial collapse or ruin yeah but i feel like women now are expected to be super women like super moms, like now you have to give birth to your baby, but you, you should be at like give birth to your baby Monday, be back at work on Tuesday yeah. and, you know, be crushing it and, and lose the weight by Wednesday. Like the, like the ex- expectation, I feel like, on, especially on professional women that you're working with has to be exponentially greater. I feel like now more than what men were expected to do. Yeah. There's so much pressure on women and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard not to become an angry feminist sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I feel like, um, and I try really hard to like, you know, when I got divorced, my, my husband had an affair and I remember again, making a conscious choice that I didn't want to be bitter. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to hate men. I didn't want to think that everyone was like that. Cause I've seen that, you know, I've seen that narrative in that story of like the bitter, um, woman who's angry at, everyone and hates all men because of what happened to her. And so I think as women in general, and I've had this conversation with my boyfriend quite a bit is, you know, we have a lot of reasons. I've seen some memes lately and it said something about, and even this is, has to do with racism and just being women too. It was like, it's a good thing. All women want is just to be equal, not to get even. And I think I also saw it like during the George Floyd stuff. It's like, it's a good thing. Black people just want to get equal and not even. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, that we have a lot of reasons. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of things that are quote against us. Um, and I think our ultimately, you know, we all get, we, we all get a choice, you know, we get a choice on how we perceive things. There's truth to so much of this. There's truth to injustice. There's truth to, um, things that happen like women's safety. You know, there's things that I have to think about that a man 
really doesn't about, you know, going out at night or being alone and all kinds of things. And then there's these expectations of not only do we have to provide and be in shape then, and we, we have to do all these things and we have to look good doing it. And I was, I was actually in the shower the other day thinking about all of the years I spent and feeling like I wasted and I, I don't know if I, you know, wasted or not, but I struggled with eating disorders, working hard in the fitness industry, trying so hard to look good. And I was like, man, what if I had just spent that time instead, like making money or, you know, if I was a guy, would I have ever even thought about that stuff? All of this brain power was turned against myself and it, it sucks that we do have a society that does that. I think there's so many women doing such good work to help change that narrative. Um, so that at the very least we, of course we do have a lot of pressure, but at the very least that maybe we can start to be seen as people with value instead of just for our bodies or just for our looks or something like that. But, you know, there's, we ultimately do get a choice in what we want to take on. So, you know, we can choose to be better or we can choose to just focus on what we can control and what we can do. And so there's definitely been times where I felt like things were unfair or there's too much pressure and it's not fair that guys don't have to, you know, worry about what they look like all the time or, and I know that's not true either. I think there's men feel pressure as well. I think it's different. Um, so ultimately, you know, there's a lot, we just know the world's not always fair. And the one thing I do know, and speaking of traveling to 37 countries is that, regardless being a woman here, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. You know, right now there's some stuff going on in Afghanistan that is terrifying for women. And so I, I went on a trip to Belize in 2013 and I saw a lot of girls who were rescued from sex trafficking and who didn't really have a lot of opportunity to, I don't know, provide or do anything different. And it gave me a renewed sense of like, any unfairness I feel here in the States, it is magnified anywhere else. And I need to use every opportunity I have to be better, do better so that I can help. So I can send money to Belize, to those children and girls and orphans so that I can make a difference. So maybe I can be an example to people here, to girls and women here of what they can do. Cause we can sit here all day and talk about what we can't do as women, as a brown or black person in America as someone with a disability, you know, that was an issue for me too, like being angry about not being able to walk. I mean, there's a lot of discrimination against people with disabilities. We can sit here all day and we can be right. We can be right. There's a lot of things that are going against us for anything where you're different, or we can go, we're going to choose our attitude and we're going to take the opportunities we do have and do the best with what we can and try to make it better for the next generation and the next group of people and just keep conversations happening. With the bulimia, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you talked about taking meds uh, for the mental health side. W- what are you doing for the bulimia side? Are you part of a, a group? Because our listeners know I'm in Sugar and Carbs Anonymous for my because I'm a sugar mm-hmm. addict. Yeah, um, yeah. So how are you, uh, what's your process for managing that? Mm, That's been an interesting one. Um, When I was in my early twenties, I was going to, uh, it wasn't, it was like overeaters anonymous, but there was a lot of like anorexic and bulimics that would show up there. 
I went a couple times and I remember I was probably 17, 18. And I remember there's a woman there who was like 38 and she was just like, I don't, she was really just crying and what was going on. And she had been driving around and binging. And I just remember looking at her, really judging her. And I was going, I don't want to be 38 years old and still dealing with this shit. But I found myself still at around 30, still dealing with it. And I thought I had found a quote cure and it was through fitness, the fitness industry. And so I became a fitness competitor. Um, I did shows and what I really found was I was exchanging one eating eating disorder for another. So what was happening was I was really strict. And I don't know if you've ever seen like these kind of shows, but super lean, like perfect body, like 10% body fat or 50% body fat, like super lean for women. And I had a coach and I would eat exactly what was on my plan. And so I thought I had control over the bulimia. I was like, as long as I just eat what's on my paper and on my plan, I'm safe. And so I was for like seven years, I thought I was cured. I hadn't had any episodes, hadn't been binging and purging. And I was like, this is, I got this. All I have to do is just eat what's on my paper until I did too much. And I actually started, I started gaining weight uh, after one of my shows and I hadn't been binging, nothing had changed. And I was doing two hours of cardio a day. And I was probably eating like 1100 calories, 900 calories someday, some days. And I'm like, I'm gaining weight really rapidly, um, like 10 pounds within two weeks. And I went to a doctor and he's like, you just need to eat less and exercise more. And I remember just wanting to strangle him. I'm like, how can I exercise more than I already am on eat less? Like literally I'm, this is what I've been doing for seven years to control my body. And now it's not working. And I'm sure people have been there too, where you do a diet that works and you try it again, it doesn't work. So my, I felt like my body was betraying me. I was like, oh my God, I'm gaining all this weight. I'm literally doing two hours a day at the gym. I'm like exhausted and everything was weighed, measured, like, you know, literally weighed and measured every single thing that went into my mouth. And I got up to 30 pounds heavier, never had weighed that much before prior to being, you know, outside of being pregnant. And, um, I was back to suicidal. I think this is like my default brain. I was like, I remember looking at the scale. I'm like, if I get to 130, I'm going to kill myself. And then I hit 130 and I was like, okay, shoot. If I get to 140, I'm going to kill myself. I hit 140. It was like, if I get to 150, like I thought if I threatened myself with suicide, I wouldn't get that. But my body was just doing what it was doing, protecting itself. And I was gaining the weight. I finally hit 150 and I was like, I can't get on the scale anymore. And I was thinking, man, and this was during the time where my husband and I moved into our friend's house. So I was already just depressed, probably stress additionally was causing this weight gain. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to get fat anyway, I might as well just eat whatever I want to eat. And I just had this effort moment. And I'm like, I'm not going to weigh my food anymore. I'm just going to binge. My husband's going to leave me. I'm going to get up to 200 pounds in like two weeks. Cause the way the weight is coming on. And I remember very specifically that night I ate a big ass bowl of spaghetti at 10 PM. And I remember it so well, because I hadn't had carbs after four o'clock in like years, <laughs> especially not spaghetti. I had had pasta and I had this big bowl of spaghetti and I got up the next morning and I weighed myself, even though I told myself not to, and I was still like 150 something, but it hadn't, but what happened was it didn't budge. And I was like, whoa, the first day I hadn't gained weight and I actually ate like carbs. And that was this like interesting moment for me of going, huh? 
And I went on this like binge for like two weeks. I was eating candy, these bags of reasons, pasta. I just let myself do it. And I was forcing myself to eat it and not throw it up. And it was almost like this really intentional, like I was trying to just get fat and my husband was going to leave me. But as I was trying and I was eating all this stuff, my body stopped gaining. And I think that was a hint that my body like needed food and I had been starving it for so long. So I was finally eating. And then the craving started to go away. The want to binge started to go away. The feelings of like needing to do that started to go away. And I finally started to learn to honor my body and listen to the cues. I remember during all this time and even going to counselors about eating disorder, they go, oh, well, just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. And I'm like, I don't know what that even means. I had trained myself so hard to like ignore feelings of hunger and eat way, 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 way past feelings of fullness that I didn't know how to work in that range. I didn't even know what that freaking meant. So it turned into this, this kind of effortic experiment, even though it was an experiment turned into me finally learning cues. And now I just have a, um, I have a more balanced approach to food and eating. I really try to pay attention to hunger cues. Um, there are definitely times where I've had triggers, you know, like going back to my parents' house is a trigger for me. And so recently this last year, my mom was sick and I moved back in and I really had to pay attention and be careful around that. Um, but one of the things now that I do today that I didn't do before is I lean into it. If there's a trigger or if there's something bothering me, I'm like, I try to dig it up. I'm like, what is that about? What is that feeling? I'm trying to name it. I'm trying to see what it is trying to go. Where did that come from? And one of the biggest things that helped me with the bulimia was hypnotherapy. Um, I went to a hypnotherapist off of Groupon because I was desperate and I actually did the hypnotherapy to help me with anxiety over a business partner breakup. And what I found was it really helped me with the anxiety around food and the eating. And that was all at the same time that I was kind of just like doing the eat whatever. And so it's been mindfulness, hypnotherapy, really digging into triggers and experimenting, going back to practicing, like we're not going to be perfect. So I had to practice eating and then just sitting with it. And it was so uncomfortable. So many times I wanted to just go purge or so many times I wanted to keep eating and fill myself up to where I was uncomfortable and I would just make myself stop. And it's just a practice. And most of the time, I don't think about it every once in a while, there's a trigger that kind of, you know, brings it back, but I don't really go to any kind of groups or anything anymore. It's been more of a personal kind of figure out as I go type of thing. You're not the only person to talk about hypnotherapy. Uh, Michelle, who we both know. Yeah. Um, she, her friend, Monique, I, I went to hypnotherapy for her eating. And, mm. uh, and has, I mean, it, it took, uh, I think like six months, eight months or something like that um, uh, of going. But, uh, but I've heard other people say they've used it for, uh, I, have, I have a buddy who quit smoking hypnotherapy. I got to get into this hypnotherapy. 
dude it's uh, really good <laughs> should i just go to any hypnotherapist or is there a way of weeding this out or is there is there something i should be aware of or gosh i don't know like i said i first found this one on groupon and he ended up being so great i did three sessions with him and it changed so much of my life um and then one of my best friends i i met her and i found out she was a hypnotherapist and i was like oh my gosh hypnotherapy changed my life and i did sessions with her and she was so talented at it i think that kind of like counselors, I think there can be people that you kind of mesh with better. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how you would look. I do have some great recommendations. This woman, Grace, um, it's gracespace, gracespace.co, I think. And she has a bunch of certified hypnotherapists on her team now. She's personally trained them. And so my last, I did hypnotherapy again, actually during the pandemic. And I worked with, so she doesn't do it anymore, um, for individuals, but I worked with one of the girls she trained and she was fantastic too. And a lot of them do it online now. So you don't even have to go in the office. You just pop your headphones in, you talk to them kind of just like, you know, we do so many things now, zoom or, or whatever, but you can do it virtually and it can be really amazing. I've had sessions that were just like, whatever, but I've had some really, really powerful sessions that were life-changing for sure. All right. I got to check that out. So now I want to, I want to come back to what we put a pin in when you're at this live event and the workshops and you talked about how much you believe in going to live events and you believe in going to workshops. And I, I, I would assume that part of it is the, the community, the collaboration, the, 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 the emotions that come up. I mean, it's like going to church, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that energy that you can't get at home on zoom, uh, alone. Uh, and not to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's just you're, it, the, the vibe is just different when it's in person. But you talked about a mindset shift. And then in 69 days, uh, it brought you out of financial collapse. What was that mindset shift? And then talk to me about the mentor also. Yeah. So, yeah, events for sure. It's the energy. It's just being there. And it's also forcing you to pay attention. I don't know about you, but now if I even watch TV, I feel like I'm, I'm on my phone at the same time. Like there's a lot of things you could be doing. You can multitask, but when you're at an event, you're kind of, you're kind of be paying attention to what the speaker's saying. You know, you're right there and people are next to you and it feels, you don't want to be the one like on your phone playing a game while you're at a thing. Um, and you're spending your time and energy being there, your time and money being there. So you're also invested that way. So a big piece um, for me was one being open to something different. So I had, you know, we've, a lot of us have heard all these things. It's same thing with diet, eat less, work out more, you'll lose weight. Well, for paying off debt, just make more money or spend less, you know, cut out your Starbucks, do that. I'm like, I've done all these things. I felt like I cut everything out and it's still not working or I can't make any more money. Here's my debt. And here's how much money I'm making. How am I ever going to get paid off? And there were things that I just, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And there were things that I didn't know that I didn't know. And there was also the biggest, there was really two big mindset shifts. One was the ego. So there were certain things that I was letting myself get in the way of, which was like keeping and holding on to things like cars and things that I had purchased where I was told to sell those. And I was like, you can sell them. You can get them again later. So we had an entire storage unit from our house when we left of all these appliances that we had bought. And I was like, well, we bought these things. They're pretty new. I don't want to get rid of them. If we get a house again, I'm going to want them. So we were paying $110 a month for the storage unit. 
for appliances that were sitting there and we had been in there over a year. Those things had been in a storage unit for over a year, which means we had paid over $1,200 to store stuff that we still didn't even know when we'd be able to pull it out. So I flew home and I sold everything out of that storage unit. So I made like $4,000 right there, just selling the things and then save a hundred dollars a month. And right there, I took that four grand and put it right down on the debt. Like, bam, that's it. Like there are some things we do. And I had a girlfriend of mine, she was going through divorce and she was crying to me that she might have to sell her car, which was at the time it was a Kia. And she was bawling about this, how she worked so hard to get this car. And I was like, Elizabeth, you are going to have, you can buy another Kia. You can get something else later right now. This is just right now. And right now it's amazing. Cause she has been, she's so successful now has a seven figure business. She drives a Mercedes and we always joke about her Kia, like how she cried about giving up the Kia. And so I think that's like, it's just a lesson there. And like, what are you, what Kia are you hanging on to? Like, are you hanging on to this house because you worked so hard to get it, but you can sell it and you can sacrifice for a few months. And then later on, you can have your dream house or your car or your wardrobe or something. There's a lot of things that our ego's hanging on to that we don't need, but we don't want to get rid of it because we feel like it means something about us. Like if we let go of that, then what does that mean about us? So the one big thing was the ego and letting go of things like what, what am I hanging on to for what reason? Why can't I let it all go? And the second was giving. And I had always, I had been brought up in a church where we were taught to tithe 10% of our income. And because I feel like I had so much religious trauma in the church, I was really anti, I was like, why should I give the church my money? And Danny talked about tithing, but she said, you want to give where your heart is led. And she said, you know, if you took 10% of a dollar, if you took 10 cents out of a dollar and it's gone, could you live off of the 90 cents? And it's like, well, yeah, like what's 90 cents going to buy you that, or what's a dollar going to buy you that 90 cents? Well, right. Like nothing and nothing. And then she just kind of went up. She's like, okay, how about somebody give you 10 bucks? Could you live off of the $9? And you're like, yeah, something that's cost nine, like 10 is not going to matter. And so she was really making this point of, of giving this 10% just as a, as a practice. And I had done all of the, I quote all of the things that I thought were right. You know, like I cut back on budgeting or cut back on things. wasn't going out. I wasn't spending excess money. And so I went in with an open mind and go, you know what? I'm going to try this giving thing. Cause I, that's the one thing that I hadn't done. And my husband and I started to take 10% of our income and we had this little envelope and it just said to give on the outside. And every time we got paid, we take 10%. I go to the ATM and pull it out in cash and put it in the envelope. And so I didn't know where it was going to go. Didn't have a church. Wasn't going to give it to a church. And he was out of town one weekend. And I was like, I wonder how much money is in that give envelope by now. It'd been a couple months. We hadn't figured out where to give it yet. And I went and peeked in the envelope and there was $400 in there. And I was like, holy crap. How am I going to give away $400? My car might break down and I'm going to need this $400 to fix it. So I literally was thinking I might just take half of it. I was like, okay, he doesn't know how much is in here. Cause I did not We just been putting it away. I'm like, maybe I'll just take 200, put it aside for my car. And then we can give away the 200. This is all going on in my brain. And I'm like, you idiot, you can't steal from yourself, from your own give money. So I like got upset and I just put the money back and I'm scrolling on Facebook and I see this like kind of GoFundMe type of thing. And these people were raising money for an orphanage in Belize to put the roof on the orphanage. 
And I just decided right then and there, my husband was back from, ta- from his out of town trip. And I was like, babe, we're going to give our money to this orphanage. And he was just like, uh, okay. And I ran to the closet, grabbed the envelope, got down in the car, drove to the bank, deposited the $400, came home, typed in $400 on my debit card, hit enter. And I like screamed. I was like, I can't believe I just gave $400 away. And it was the most exhilarating thing I'd ever done. And it's terrifying. And then suddenly I just felt this completely different energy. I was like, oh my gosh, did we give the most? And I was scrolling through to see who gave more money. Some people gave more money. Somebody gave a thousand. I was like, oh man, they gave more money than we did. I thought 400 was so much. And soon this just became this policy of mine was just to give and to give. And I realized like it just created a completely different mindset, this mindset of abundance. If you are hanging so tightly and I give this like visual example, if you put, if you have your palm open, you have a hundred dollars in your hand and you leave your hand open, someone could come over and just grab the hundred dollars. They could steal it right out of your hand. Right. And if, but if you have a hundred dollars in your hand and you clench it in your fist and you make your hand really, really tight, no one can take that hundred dollars out of your hand because you're holding it so tight, but nobody could have put anything else in there either. So if we have an open palm and leave it there, somebody can also, they can stack another hundred on top. Someone could take it, but then someone could put more on. And so for me, it's like this open hand policy of where money comes and goes, things come and go. It's all about flow and abundance. But if we're holding on so tight to the things we have, we're also not allowing anything else to come in. And so that was one of the biggest shifts for me was the giving was what taught me the shift to really live more out of abundance and not a uh, scarcity and fear and hanging on tight to everything. I love that. Let, so uh, letting go of, of the things that you don't want to let go of, but you need to let go of, mm-hmm. like, are you holding on to a Kia? Uh, I love that. And also then at the same time, giving and keeping, you know, the, keeping the, the finances or the money uh, circulating. That's why it's called currency, right? Mm-hmm. Currency, right? We need that. We, it has to be at ebb and flow if you want it to come back. And you know, what's beautiful about that? Cause I know people may be listening and saying, Oh, well, you know, that, that happened for one person. But I remember when I had $20 in my pocket and I had, I think I had like $23 and I gave $3 to a, another person uh, who was living on the streets. And in my brain, it was the idea of like, I'm going to give him three and, uh, and I'll probably get back 30 somehow. I just don't know how, but Mm -hmm. I had to trust that, you know, that's how things ebb and flow. So I think that you're right. It's about what are you telling yourself in the act? Uh, and, and where's your heart at? And my heart was, I just, like, I see this person and I want to give something to this person. Um, and it, it has nothing to do with where I'm at. I'm going to, I'll figure out something else uh, or somebody else will hook me up the same way I'm, I'm helping this guy. It's so true how it comes back. So literally after that $400 episode where I gave that, um, I came up with this new business idea and I ended up making $5,000. And so like how I said, it paid off $18,000 in 69 days. It was I didn't get any, like, I didn't win any money. You know, we sold some things out of the storage unit, but then it was like these new ideas came and I got new clients. And I really, really believe that when we start to trust things, we can't always know how things are going to happen. That's also the problem is I was sitting here going, well, I know I make this much amount of money. And so I know I can't pay it off. We have to be open to 
things being different possibilities, things we don't, and we can't see right now. And so it really taught me as well to just not even try to figure out the house, just have the trust and be in abundance. And also it's like, really what's that $400 going to do at that point for me? Cause it had been sitting in the closet for two months or so. Like it didn't, it already didn't exist in my life. So the fact that I finally gave it away was kind of ridiculous because it really hadn't been doing anything obviously in the closet. So I think we have to really, and again, back to practice, it's a practice. I would challenge anyone who's having money issues. Anytime I feel stressed about money, the first thing I do is like, okay, I need to go give some money away. And it's such a weird thing, but it's what I do now because it gets me out of that scarcity. So whenever I'm feeling broke and look, if you're broke, you got $20 in your bank account. If you give away 20, you're still just as broke. Like having zero or 20 is not going to make you, (laughs) it's not going to make a difference. It's the same, right? $20 doesn't even buy you a tank of gas. So whenever I'm feeling broke or I literally have been, you know, broke, I will go online and look for a charity or something or somebody to give some money to. And that tends to just help me get out of the, the mindset. And almost nine times out of 10, something happens shortly after where something out of the blue, new client or new opportunity comes. It's so crazy. And I don't do it for that reason, um, but it's crazy how it works. You know, one of the things I love to ask people is not what did you do today, but what did you practice today? Right. Because there's a the, 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 the practice denotes some type of skill building it's, and, and also intention. Right. Because uh, what we what you did today, uh, some of the things we, we, we do a lot of things mindlessly, like you said, watching TV on a cell phone. But what did you practice? What did you learn? What what, what did you what did you set your intention on? So I love that you came back to that word of practice giving. Um, I want to I want to have a few questions left. I want to circle back to your family and your cousin. How have you been able to practice forgiving them? Such a good one. I think forgiveness is also a really, really powerful uh, practice. And actually, Danny Johnson, that mentor I had, she actually says forgiveness is a habit. And I used to think once you forgave somebody, well, one of two things, if you forgive someone, then that means what they did was okay. And it's like, and some things just aren't okay. And forgiveness doesn't mean that what somebody did was okay. doesn't let them off the hook. doesn't mean there shouldn't be a punishment or consequence. Forgiveness is really for you. And it took me a long time to really get that through my head. When someone does you wrong, so many times you want to get revenge. You want to get even, you want to get back. The last thing you want to do is forgive, right? And so I think ultimately first is we have to figure out what does forgiveness mean and what does it do? And so for me, it was actually easier to forgive my cousin than it was to forgive my own mom. And that was something I struggled with for a really, really long time. And I think that we put ideas of how people should be on them, whether that's right or wrong. I think we expect certain things out of our parents. We expect our parents to protect us, to be a certain way, to have done things a certain way. And so I think we can be really hard on our parents, on our spouses, even on our children and other people, we may not have those kind of expectations for, you know, like, I don't know, some dude at the grocery store, if he's, if he breaks a promise, like it doesn't affect me. But if my mom breaks a promise and I have this idea that 
mother should never break promises to their daughters, then I'm really judging her for that. And so for me, um, the hypnotherapy helped with the forgiveness as well. Um, I also, (laughs) another thing that really shifted for me was plant medicine, um, ayahuasca in particular, I just barely tried like mushroom psilocybin. I wasn't able to, I've only done it one time. Um, but I, I learned a lot through that too, but with plant medicines, psychedelics, things like that, they can get you to a state where you're able to feel some connection. And I actually had a really interesting, um, journey in self-forgiveness and self-compassion and seeing myself for who I was, like when I was six, that 16 year old girl, um, giving birth. And I had this moment of realizing that I never allowed her to grieve and grieve the loss of my daughter. And so I sat with myself in this journey of like holding my younger self and letting her grieve. And then also being able to see from my parents' perspective of what was going on then and what they were doing and just having a a different view. And I have this like activity that I do with people um, in some of my workshops about forgiveness. I have people write out what, like a narrative of what happened, like what was the thing that was done to you? So let's just say my dad, my dad had a gambling addiction and my parents got divorced over it. And so the story in my mind was we weren't lovable. My dad didn't love his family enough to stay. Right. So this is the story and this is the thing I'm carrying with me. And this is what I feel about my father. But when you do this exercise, we write down this scenario. Okay. Right. As the narrator, man has gambling addiction. He can't seem to control it. Man's family leaves. Like, okay, there's the narrator. This is if somebody's just describing it from the outside. And then you're also writing like what the story you wrote, the story you told yourself. So for me, it was the story that dad didn't love us enough. He would have done better. Then the third narration is the other person, putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And so I started to think about my dad. He must've thought, man, I am such a horrible father. My kids are better off without me. I can't control this addiction. I can't control. I'm a bad provider. I've done so many bad things. They're better off not even having me in their life. And so seeing it from this like outside perspective of just the narrator that had nothing to do with me, like here's just the scene being painted. And then here's my dad's side. And you can start to shift. And for me to be able to put myself in the other person's shoes and to look at it objectively helped me a lot with forgiveness. And so when I was looking at my cousin, um, he had a lot of horrible things happen in his life. He had a lot of abuse. And for me, it was easier to forgive him because I knew he abused me, but I know he was even more badly abused for a longer time by multiple people. And I started to feel some compassion towards him. And again, doesn't make what he did right. Doesn't make what happened at all. Okay. For any of the scenarios. Um, but it was one tool that helped me in learning to forgive. And I think that there's some things that just maybe aren't forgivable and that won't be easy to forgive. There was a Wayne Dyer tape I listened to, or I had to say tape, it was a CD or something. Um, I think it was called excuses be gone. And he has this man stand up in the audience and the man's 
daughter was murdered by her boyfriend. And he just was so angry at the boyfriend. And he's like, I don't want to forgive this. I don't want to forgive her boyfriend. And Wayne Dyer was like, okay, let's not start with the boyfriend. Like that's too hard. It's too difficult. Let's think about the boyfriend's parents, how they feel that their son was a murderer. Let's like work on them. And can you be willing to like have compassion for his parents? And that was a window to open up. So I think sometimes it's, you don't always have to forgive. I think being willing to forgive is a good step. If you can just say, I'm willing to be open to forgiveness. Doesn't mean you're there yet. Doesn't mean you have to be. Doesn't mean you need to. But ultimately for me, forgiveness was finally like a sigh of relief. It wasn't for the other person. It was really for me to let go of that inner constant anger and rage and feeling of constant like unfairness and bitterness that was building up inside me. And the hardest person I think to forgive very often is ourselves. And that's one that I think is a constant also habit is just looking back and going, you did your best with everything you were given in the moment and everything you knew and everything that was happening to you and everything that was going on, you did your best and you did what you thought you had to do. And that's all you can do. And you have to let go of those, you know, decisions that maybe you made that you're regretting. And, you know, we do our best and we're here and we're human and we're learning and again, this whole theme today is like practice, but forgiveness is a practice and just being willing is the first step. And then you sometimes forgive and you feel good. And then the anger comes back and you have to do it again. And for my mom, that was a big piece for me. It was a constant, it was forgiveness. And then triggers would come back something else. And then I had to do it again. And then triggers would come back and I'd have to do it again. It's not a one and done thing, but I think it can really, really change and heal over time. I love that forgiveness is a practice and, you know, zooming out to maybe you can't have compassion for that person, their parents, their grandparents, the, the society, or I love that. That is such a, a beautiful sentiment. Thank you for sharing that part with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with all the modalities that you've experienced and been through and, um, and still undergoing, do you have a daily practice? As far as forgiveness or uh, no, no, just in general, like, uh, let's let's narrow, let's zoom in a little bit. Uh, you have a morning routine or a bedtime routine? Gosh, I wish I did. Um, you know, what's really funny is, so I, I've been living out of a suitcase for over three years. And so having any kind of routine has been really difficult. And so in 2020, it was the irony. I, I kept thinking I manifested the entire lockdown and pandemic because the beginning of 2020, I was telling my boyfriend, I just need to be in one place for four weeks. Cause I think I had traveled over 60 times or something, basically like every four days I've been traveling and I didn't have my own apartment since 2018. I have been living from Airbnbs to hotels to, you know, friends, family, basically, cause I was speaking and it just never seemed to make sense to like get a lease somewhere when I was going to be gone all the time, you know? So I been living out of the suitcase. I was really tired, really exhausted. I said, I just want to be somewhere for four weeks. So we booked an Airbnb March 1st through March 31st, 2020. And the whole goal was just to get in a routine and just to like, feel like there's some kind of habits forming. 
And the irony was that the lockdown happened mid-March, like March 14th. And we ended up being in this place for four months. But I did start um, doing some things then. Um, There's a book called A Course in Miracles. And I have been trying to get through it for years, probably eight or nine years. And so I started this every morning. I would do a green juice. I'd read a section in A Course in Miracles. And I would do a little bit of a meditation. Um, And, you know, I kind of been back to traveling again recently. And my mom got really sick. And I was staying with her for seven months. So a lot of my routine was off again, but so I don't really have anything specific, but when I feel like I'm off and off kilter and need something, I try to go back to just like short meditations. Even if I know my, my mind goes kind of, I'm a little bit ADD, ADHD. So sometimes I can't focus for more than a few minutes, but there's some apps I have on my phone. Um, like I think one's called breathe and there's like three minute meditations and 10 minute ones. And so when I'm trying to just get back to center, I'll do some of those, some little meditations or read A Course in Miracles or go on a walk. But I don't have anything that I've really stuck to because of my travel. And it's very, it's one thing that I do really miss about, one thing I don't love about traveling so much is feeling sometimes ungrounded. But I think, you know, you just find those moments. It doesn't have to be necessarily a morning routine or evening routine. One of the things I do, I did a lot with my ex-husband was we do our gratitudes every night. So we would just say out loud the five things we're grateful for that day. And um, even when I was divorced, I would just, I would do that in my room by myself and say it out loud. And now that I'm saying it, I forgot I haven't done it in a while, but it was something that really made me kind of feel good and just remember the good things that happened in the day versus, yeah, versus all the crap that went wrong. I feel like more and more so now for me personally, I find myself more with a spirit of gratitude more of the time. So I don't have to constantly remind myself, but um, yeah, gratitude practice. When I remember sometimes just the green juice thing to make myself feel like I'm doing something good for myself, physically a walk or a small meditation, but nothing super consistent to be honest the green juice in the morning and meditation and grat those are game changers they really are because it gets Mm -hmm. you out of your head it it makes you think about other people a lot of times i'll i'll be you know like today i think i wrote i was grateful that the air quality was good Mm -hmm. Uh, apparently uh tomorrow is going to be that the water quality i might have to check the water (laughs) quality down here Uh, (laughs) right right (laughs) start stocking up on avion or something right um and then last two questions uh, what are you looking forward to? Mm, you know, this is, I don't want this to sound so awful. I guess it's not awful, but my mom just passed away two weeks ago and the last year, almost the last year, 10 months has been really dedicated to just her. You know, she, I moved in, I kind of quit working at the end of 2020. Everything was about helping her get to her appointments and keeping her alive. (laughs) And so it was a big sacrifice and I don't regret it. I think I found so much healing in that time. And I feel like it was an honor to be able to do that. Um, but I'm really looking forward to getting my life back and figuring out what that looks like now. I feel like, um, because I took so much time stepped away and because of all the things that happened in 2020, just collectively in the world, it's going to be a lot of different perspective. And so, going back into my work, I want to be really intentional about what that looks like now. You know, what is this, what is all of this last year taught me and what kind of messages do I want to bring forward 
um, when I speak again and who do I want to work with again? And so I'm really looking forward to just finding more clarity and to getting back to focusing on myself and my health, <laughs> my mental health, my physical health, like everything that I feel like I had neglected over the last nine, uh, not last 10 months. Wow. And last question, um, you know, I always imagine there's one person listening in, maybe on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Danny? Mm. I know there were so many things, so many times, especially the first time I was really suicidal in high school. So I remember being told that these are the best years of your life. And so I remember thinking, if these are the best years of my life, then I definitely don't want to live anymore. And I was so terrified of becoming an adult and going, oh my gosh, like they're all, all the adults I know are so miserable. And if this is the best time, it's just going to get worse Then I might as well end it. And I just want to say it is not true. Things can get better and they can get better and they can get better. And there's that, there's a scripture, this too shall pass. And that's a mantra that I had a lot going through my divorce and going through even the pain with my mom. And there's just a reminder that there's seasons of pain and there's seasons of joy and this too shall pass. And so whatever you're going through, it's not permanent and things can change in an amazing and magical and very quickly way, very quick way. And so it's like, hold on, let it pass. Don't make a permanent decision on a temporary feeling. Um, and I, and also I would say, I get it and I've been there and there are a lot of really cool things to see in this world, cool things to do. And life can be really amazing. Um, but Right now it's not, and that's okay, and it will pass. And then plug all your things, Janny. <laughs> I combined your first and last name. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they, they put me on my Starbucks cup. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the best place to find me is on Instagram at dannyj.com. It's D-A-N-N-Y, like a boy, and then the letter J, and then you spell out .com, D-O-T-C-O-M. Or you can just go on the internet to dannyj.com. And actually just put the dot super confusing. I know, but, um, and I have a podcast called the best life podcast. And we really talk a lot about this kind of stuff. We talk about relationships. We go really deep. Um, we have some really fun, lighthearted topics. And then we have some like really deep, heady topics, but, um, it's a really fun place where you get to hear these kind of conversations. And so, yeah, find me on Instagram. You'll find all the links there too. Uh, I, I can't wait for you and, uh, Jeff to come on down. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I'm oh so my excited. God. This is going to be, I mean, this is a great conversation and the conversation I had with him was, was, uh, your JT money, uh, uh, was remarkable also, uh, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or getting some hypnotherapy or a little, a little plant-based medicine. You know, for me, it's dandelion tea. Uh, you know, I, I the, the ayahuasca. Oh man, I, I that's 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 a journey right there. I I, I have to look more into that. Um, but I've heard I've heard you know what I've heard about ayahuasca that the um, 
it's really effective for people who have a history of uh, sexual trauma. Like mm. the, the, the plant-based medicines, the, the psychedelics, like it's, it's like they're really finding uh, some efficacy with that. So it, to double down on, on what you've said, um, but like, but like everything we said in this episode, it takes an exhaustive and comprehensive approach, a friend, a mentor, a willingness, a forgiveness, all those things. Uh, but at the, but at the start, you, you have to reach out. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you so much for having me.